verses 6 through 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, and he had an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He declared in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has arrived, and worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs and the water. And so the theme of this section, that we, as we transition out of the 144,000 to these angels that begin to fly and give messages, this theme of this section is the salvific judgment on the world for its sin and rebellion. Uh, a judgment that brings both salvation and judgment for those who do not follow God. The point of their message is to warn the people of the world and call them to the lion lamb. One should not see these as literal angels flying over creation for all to hear and see, but that the angels do this continuously as they work behind the scenes in the spiritual realm to influence humanity. The idea is God is always sending his angels into humanity constantly over and over again. Hebrews chapter 13, you've entertained angels and not even known it. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah, he sends angels in first to investigate and lead people out and redeem them before the judgment comes. God is continuously sending angels with these messages to the people in order to pull them out of the world so they will escape the judgment. Because even though God is a just God and will deal with evil, his desire, his greatest desire, is that none shall perish. And over and over again, no matter how many times God judges the world, he always sends witnesses in to extract people. And the flood generation, Noah's sent in to extract. And Sodom and Gomorrah, angels are sent in to extract. Before he destroys Jericho, he sends in two witnesses to extract people. He's constantly sending people in to extract them before the great judgment of God. And this is what he's doing over and over again in these ideas. The first angel is called another angel. Any other angel that has been mentioned in the text, however, is too far removed from this one. So what does it mean another angel? We haven't seen an angel for a while. Okay, so it's too far removed to say, oh, this came right after another one. So most likely it should be understood as a new angel, which amounts to a literary variation. This is the only place in the Bible where an angel is said to have flown. I know a lot of the artistic paintings throughout Europe show angels flying, but nowhere are they ever portrayed as having wings. We see the four cherubim who have wings, the seraphim have wings, but they're not the sons of God in the way that we're used to as angels. What they are, we have no idea, but they're not the same thing. Oftentimes, the way that when your angels are always look like men, all throughout the Bible, they look like men. In fact, in Song of Gomorrah, they thought they were just men. They thought they were powerful men, but they thought they were men. And, and, and when um, Yahweh and the two angels come to Abraham in chapter 18, he thinks that they're men. It takes him a while before he just realizes it's Yahweh and them. And so this is seen over and over again. How do you portray angels as different from men in art? You give them wings. Well, why do you give them wings? Because the only thing that's way up there are the gods. But the only thing that's closest to that are birds. And so oftentimes wings are attached to gods to give them the idea that this is a god. You see this with Marduk and the Babylonian, the Canaanite religion of Baal. They're often portrayed as wings, but in their poetry, in their stories, they never, ever have wings. 
Uh, Zeus sometimes is portrayed as wings and art, but he never has wings in Greek mythology. Giving wings, we saw the winged woman um, giving wings um, Israel and taken off. And the idea is that they are lift, they are either protected by God or they are a God themselves or a divine being. And so this is the first time we see them flying in the entire Bible. And so this ancient, this angel, the first angel announces not so much the gospel of salvation that Jesus provided through the cross, rather the gospel of certainty that Jesus will discriminately separate those who are with him and who are not, who are not on the day of judgment. The first angel is not announcing the gospel necessarily, but he's announcing the separation of the goats from the sheep, so to speak, and that he will discriminate between those who believe him and those who don't. Verse 8, a second angel followed the first, declaring, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great city. She made all the nations drink wine of her immoral passions. So the second angel announces that Babylon has fallen. It is called the great city in Revelation. Though the title great city is used of Jerusalem one time, and Revelation, everywhere else, the great city refers to Babylon. This is the first of six mentions of Babylon and Revelation. And the reference to Babylon here is obviously not literal since this city doesn't exist anymore. This city was destroyed by the Greeks and it does not exist. It has never existed since then. Some Hussein tried to rebuild Baghdad um, or the, um, the, the city of Ur, Babylon, which we, outside of Baghdad, said that wrong. He tried to rebuild Babylon, which is right outside of Baghdad, um, but he never successfully did that. Babylon obviously is a metaphor. It doesn't matter what view you take, everybody agrees that Babylon is a metaphor for just, now of course the futurists would say this is literally Rome, and other people would say, and the predators would say this is literally Rome, and others would say this is Rome and every other nation that is like Rome and its paganism and that kind of stuff. And so God announces it's going to fall. This is the first time that we're introduced to the theme of Babylon. And when we get to chapter 17, Babylon is going to be developed a lot. So we'll talk about that in a lot more detail when we get to 17. But for right now, Babylon is the political and religious capital of world empires renowned for its material luxury, paganism, and moral corruption. Babylon symbolizes the epitome of absolute material, decadent material luxury and pleasure and glamour, as well as idolatry, as well as corruption of justice and that kind of stuff. It's symbolic of the secular and unjust spirit of humanity in any age that seduces through glamour, entertainment, and luxury and coerces bribes others to compromise truth to give themselves over to the dragon and the beast and to worship idols rather than the creator. The nature of Babylon will be unpacked later, as I mentioned. Ultimately, Babylon for right now is the spirit of the world that seduces you into idolatry, seduces you into the message of the world. And that's what Babylon is. John mixes two evocative images when describing Babylon here. As he describes it, says, She made all the nations drink of the wine of her immoral passions. Like I talked about the fact that in the Bible, there are two mountains, the mountain of God and the mountain of the pagan gods of the world. There are two cities, the lofty city of the world and the Mount Zion. Of course, it was going to be truly synonymous. It's Mount Zion, the people of God, and the lofty city of Jerusalem. But there's also two women. 
There's the virgin daughter of Israel or the bride of Christ. And there's also she, the adulterous woman of Babylon. And she made all the nations drink of the wine of her moral passions. This drink intoxicates people to follow after the pagan gods. The idea is not necessarily that she goes out and gets people drunk and you're like, well, I'm not a believer and I'm not getting drunk, therefore that doesn't apply to me. It's you're getting drunk on the passions and the desires of the world, that you're intoxicated, that, so to speak, you're trying to keep up with the Joneses in some basic kind of a sense. And so it's a wine. She is trying to seduce you into idolatry. Second, the drink of... Oh, sorry. This represents spiritual blindness and idolatry. The fact that the people are willing to cooperate with Babylon, cooperate with the beast, cooperate with the dragon, and give themselves over for economic security and comfort. People sell themselves out. Look, our greatest desires are to be loved and accepted, to be safe and secure, and to have a purpose. And if you don't find those in Christ, you will go somewhere else. And if you don't learn to surrender yourself to Christ, then you'll try to gain that for yourself. And we try to seize power. And we try to seize power that we can have at least enough control over our lives, that we can create a good, comfortable life for ourselves, where we are safe physically and emotionally from the things of the world. And so we will give ourselves over. And then when life is not always safe, because it's not, then we will try to have the power to entertain ourselves like a coping mechanism so that we don't have to face the reality of how we're not truly accepted and not truly safe. Now, some people go so far that when they get enough power, they begin to use that to oppress and exploit other people to have even more power because then that brings them a greater sense of acceptance and a sense of security and entertainment. But when you do not follow Christ, you will seek out to find your own means of comfort. And when comfort is not always attainable, you will find your own means to entertain yourself, to escape the reality that life is not always safe and secure. And so this is what we pursue. And so what it's saying here is that this is why people sell out. And if you've paid attention long enough to history, and especially what's been going on in the last couple of years, where things are really being revealed for what they really are in our country, this is what most people are, why they're selling out. They're afraid. They're scared of what's coming. They don't know who to trust anymore in our government. They don't know what to believe anymore from the media. They are selling out to messages and agendas and ideologies because they just want to be safe. And when they don't feel safe, we just absorb ourselves in entertainment and our Netflix and Disney Plus accounts and all that kind of stuff, or alcohol or whatever, to try to numb ourselves from the reality that the, everything's collapsing around us. And even though our economy is semi-collapsing, and I don't know how much collapsing because it's really hard to figure out right now because it looks really bad, but nobody's changing the way that they're living. <laughs> that just seems so contradictory to me. But that's why. Because if I keep going out and living in my entertainment life, then I don't have to pay attention to the fact that things are really scary right now. And this is what Babylon represents. 
You go and you see Babylon and she offers you the intoxication of pleasure, comfort, entertainment. And it's way better than the alternative because that's chaos and that's depression. And the other alternative is Christ, but that's submission and obedience and surrendering your will. And that's scary too for a lot of people. And that's the idea. Second, the drink offered by Babylon contained the desire to think and act immorally. It then, once you give yourself over to it, ooh, ooh, this will help me feel comfortable and safe and forget all my problems. Well, then it intoxicates you. And when we become intoxicated, we lose self-control. And then we just start giving ourselves over to any message that comes. Once you buy into the message of the world, then any message can grip you and your thinking and the way that you act. And so this gives us over to our moral passions. The Greek word here is thymos. And thymos can be translated as anger or passionate longing. It's the idea of an immoral, passionate, um, deep emotion that you're feeling that either leads to anger or leads to a passionate longing for something that you shouldn't have. Uh, something that brings pleasure and immoral, illicit behavior and that kind of stuff. Either way, it's an intense, intense, intense emotion and passion. Anger is passion. Okay, People attack other people in a passionate fit of rage, so to speak. But it's also the passion that I wanted, like the great Gatsby. The idea of pursuing it and going after it. And so this should be translated, the, the NIV translates this as maddening. Not really, I mean, maddening like anger, yes, but that's not the best, um, like you've gone insane. Although some people are going insane. Or the NET translates it as passion. And that's probably a, a more accurate idea as passion, although that passion could lead to a maddening sense. And so those are drink, give themselves those are pleasure. And once people consume the drink, they become just like Babylon. The beast is no longer human or in the image of God. Ironically, Yahweh will make Babylon drink her own mixture. And so one day, when we get to chapter 17, God will force Babylon to drink its own mixture so that it ends up destroying itself. So in the final judgment of Christ, Babylon will fall because of its idolatry and misuse of power. There is no redemption for Babylon. Because it is the world itself, its philosophy of idolatry, rebellion, and self-pleasure. What the world places hope in for salvation cannot stand in the face of Yahweh's judgment. And so Babylon is not redeemable. The world is not redeemable. As in the Pauline sense of the word world. The philosophy, the idolatry, the ideologies of the world. That is not redeemable. That's what God is going to destroy. Verse 9. A third angel followed the first two, declaring in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and takes the mark on his forehead or his hand, that person will also drink of the wine of God's anger that has been mixed undiluted in the cup of his wrath. He will be tortured with fire and sulfur in front of the holy angels and in front of the Lamb. And the smoke from their torture will go up forever and ever. Those who worship the beast in the image will have no rest day or night, along with anyone who receives the mark of his name. This requires the steadfast endurance of the saints, those who obey God's commandments, who hold their faith in Jesus Christ. Then I heard the voice of the heavens say, Write this, Blessed are the dead, those who die in the Lord, from this moment on. 
Yes, says the Spirit, so they can rest from their hard work because their deeds will follow them. So the third angel announces that those who choose to be part of Babylon and worship the beast will fall with Babylon. We're going to be very clear later that the lake of fire was created for the dragon and for the beast and for Babylon. But those who give themselves over to Babylon and the beast and the dragon will follow them into the lake of the fire. The lake of fire was not designed for humans to be there. But because humans give themselves over to these three entities, they go and follow those three entities. And that is the absolute heartbreaking, heart-wrenching reality of the judgment of God. As the lake of fire was designed for them, but people choose to follow them all the way into the lake of fire. And that's what God is warning My desire is none shall perish. Please renounce the dragon, the beast, and Babylon so that you will not follow their path and go in. And he says, I will give them undiluted wine. The cup that God is going to give them is mixed. This mixed wine is an interesting concept. It's mixed and undiluted. What does that mean? Mix originally referred to adding undul- um, sorry originally referred to adding spices to the wine before it was dispensed. So in the ancient world, they would take spices and they would throw it into the mine, wine, and it became mixed wine. This would increase its strength. So if you really want to increase the strength of the wine, then you throw spices in it. And this would be the idea, this would be served at banquets of kings and powerful elite people in order to induce intoxication even faster, to bring revelry and and partying even faster, a total giving over. And so God says he will give you that. He will increase. Remember Romans says he gave them over to their desires. And so God says, if you really want to drink this wine, then I will serve you mixed wine. I will increase intoxication until it destroys you completely. Just like when they were worshiping the golden calf and Moses came down and he grinded it up and he threw the the wood and the gold into the water and made them drink and said, if you really want the golden calf, then fine, here it is. Drink it, take it down, make it a part of you. And it would have made them sick. It would have given them indigestion for lack of a stronger word. Undiluted refers to the strength of the wine with water. In the ancient world, most people on a regular basis did not drink. A lot of people drank wine. Most of the ancient world drank wine on a regular basis, partly because it was hard to purify water in the ancient world. And if you had a spring or something like that, you could drink the purified water and that kind of stuff. But if you were far away from a spring or had traveled a long distance to get to you or you were in the city, and we've all seen the movies of the ancient world, there's not a whole lot of hygiene and all that kind of stuff going on. They don't know anything about bacteria and that kind of stuff. And so wine kills it. Okay, Wine kills a lot of the bacteria, the germs and the things and that kind of stuff. And so the idea is that wine was poured and you would drink wine because it was often safer than water and so to drink but at the same time you don't really want to just be drinking wine all the time that doesn't lead to productive lives and all that kind of stuff and so they would cut the wine 
they would dilute it with water um, to turn it. Now, it would be fermented because we know grape juice doesn't last very long, okay? Now, your grape juice lasts a long time before it begins to ferment because we had this thing called pasteurization and chemicals and refrigeration, and most of it's not really juice anymore, and it preserves it for a long time. But if you take just pure, just squeeze a bunch of grapes into a glass, set it outside in the summer in the 90-degree weather, and just see how long it'll last before it starts fermenting. It won't be the best-tasting wine you've ever had, but it will be fermented. And that, that's the idea here is that it didn't last. In fact, this is what made Welch's grape juice so revolutionary is because Welch applied the pasteurization process to the grape juice in order to allow you to taste it without getting drunk and having, without having to cut it. But then America came along and said, hey, we can make more money if we cut it with water again. So they killed the dream of Welch. If you go to their website, it's like 80% water. Even milk is. The United Dairy Farmer website literally says our milk is 80% water because we make more money that way. That was a little sidetrack. <laughs> so you would dilute the wine and you would cut it with water. In the ancient world, wine was often cut by water 3 to 1 or 10 to 1, depending on how much of it you were drinking, how wealthy you were. And in one in half, this is about 1.5%. A good wine is 15% alcohol. If you cut it 3 to 1, it is 5%. 2 to 1, it is 1 and a half percent. A beer can be between 3 to 5%. So this gives you an idea that a lot of people were cutting it down to probably the toxicity of beer, some the toxicity, sorry, the, the intensity of beer and that kind of stuff. So what God is saying is, I'm going to give you undiluted wine. It's not going to be cut. It's not going to be cut. And so the idea is I'm going to make you embrace. He uses two images to say you're going to get the full intensity of my wrath. The Mosaic law was divided into three sections. There was the law, which taught you how to be righteous so you could enter the presence of God. There was the tabernacle, which allowed you to come into the presence of God. And there was a sacrificial system that purified you of your sins when you didn't live according to the law so that you could enter the presence of God. At the core of the Mosaic Covenant was not the law. At the core of the Mosaic Covenant was a tabernacle. The ultimate desire of God was to fellowship with you. And that was the tabernacle. The law taught you how to live so you can come in His presence, just like if you slap me in the face, I will say, I love you and I want you to be my friend, but I don't like that. So if you want to keep hanging out with me, don't slap me in the face. And so God says, I love you. I want to dwell with you. So if you want to keep doing that, then here's how you love me and other people. And once you did that, you would come into the presence of God. But no one could do that. So that means the sacrificial system was the foundation of the Mosaic Covenant, not the law. The law was never the core and it was never the foundation. The core was dwelling with God, tabernacle. The foundation was the sacrificial system. Because without the sacrificial system, you'll never dwell with God. And this is the point that the author of Hebrews is making. That if Christ replaces the sacrificial system by becoming the lamb and dying on the cross, then he also replaces everything in the Mosaic Covenant. Because without the sacrificial system, the Mosaic Covenant can't stand. And the point is this. The law always brings death. Paul says. The law does not save. The law cannot forgive. The law cannot bring life. 
the law always brings death. Every time you put yourself under the law, it will kill you because you can never do it. What brings life? What brings forgiveness? The sacrificial system. When David murders and violates a woman, murders the husband and violates the woman, under the law, he dies. But God forgives him because God has to remove him from under the law and place him under the sacrificial system in order to be forgiven. Romans 3.25 tells us that means a lot of people aren't getting punished by the law if they get forgiven. But it's in the cross that justice is poured out and all those sins are finally punished that God overlooked throughout all the humanity because of his mercy and his forgiveness. But at the same time, we can still receive mercy and forgiveness because we're not the one dying on the cross, Jesus instead. It's the only place that mercy and justice come together at the same time. The law will always bring death. The cross will always bring life. And you have a choice what you're going to put yourself under. And if you choose to reject Christ, you put yourself under the law. And you will drink the full intensity of its judgment. That's the idea. You will drink the full intensity of its judgment. And that's your choice. When you say, forget you, God, it's called the highest handed sin. It's the only sin that's not forgivable. When you say, screw you, God, forget you, I'm going to do what I want and follow my heart, then you will go under the law. And that's the idea that's being painted here. The image of the torment is graphic and severe. The imagery of fire and sulfur as a means of torment appears three other times in Revelation 19.20, The allusion is to the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. This combination is used of divine judgment in Deuteronomy 29 and Job 18, Psalm 11, Isaiah 30, Ezekiel 38. That involved a spiritual and psychological torment rather than physical. When you look up all these passages, every time God talks about the judgment, it refers specifically to spiritual and psychological torment. The idea of fire and brimstone is not a literal thing. God does not love you so much that he sends his son to die on the cross and when he rejects that, he just tortures you and burns you alive for all eternity. It's a metaphor. How do you explain torment of living without God for all eternity to a bunch of people who don't care about living with God? You have, we, none of us have any idea what it's like to live in the torment of living without God. Even the non-believer still has common grace and the Holy Spirit working in their life in this world, drawing them, guiding them. They have the love of God in the world coming into their lives. They have believers working in their lives. Nobody in this world has ever experienced living completely without God. And so you choose to say, I don't want you, God. I'm going to live without you. And God says, fine, here's a place where I don't exist. So how do you explain that kind of a torment that none of us could ever comprehend? You had to use the worst imagery that they had in the ancient world, and that was burning alive, that kind of stuff. That's a scary judgment for even us today. He's using graphic imagery to portray this judgment. We'll talk about this more when we get to the actual lake of fire, but this is graphic and severe in order to paint the intensity of what it means to live without God. Fire represents judgment. This is not a literal place of fire, but rather a place that we create of our own torment because we're not with God. The three angels announce that the world will come under judgment, that Babylon will be sacked, and all those who chose corrupt and lofty city of Babylon will follow this city into torment. Until then, the believers need to endure patiently 
and remain faithful to Jesus. John concludes by stating, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, and from now on cannot refer to those Christians who die in some future seven-year tribulation. When John says, Blessed are you who die from now on, meaning you won't go to some kind of torment or Abraham's bosom or a temporary place, because now post-Christ you can go directly to heaven. He means from that point on, not some future seven-year tribulation. Then that's when you're blessed, when you die and go to heaven. It's happening right now for us in this life. Verse 14. When I looked and a white cloud appeared, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man. He had a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And then the end, another angel came out of the temple, shouting in a loud voice to the one seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and start to reap, because the time to reap has come. Since the earth's harvest is ripe, so the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Most likely, this figure is Christ. He is described as one like the Son of Man. And we have talked about this multiple times. That goes back to Daniel 7. It clearly refers to the God-man who approaches the throne of Yahweh and is given all power, all sovereignty, all honor, and all glory over all people. And every person of every nation bows down and worships Him. Only Yahweh is that. And from that point on, it always refers to Jesus, especially in the Gospels, especially in Revelation. So when it says, one like the Son of Man came on the clouds, this is Jesus. The only difficulty with this being Jesus right here is when the angel commands Jesus to reap the earth. And that is a difficulty. And a lot of people are like, a lot of people that I know who don't believe this is Jesus admit, this has got to be Jesus. Only the Son of Man applies to Jesus. But that doesn't seem likely. Most likely, the, the better way to understand this is not that the angel's like, hey, you, you do this now. It's more the idea that he's relaying a message from Yahweh to Jesus. Angels are messengers. The word angel literally means messenger, which means he's not giving his own commands. Everything that comes out of his mouth is a message from somebody else, and that it's always from the one who sends them, and it's always Yahweh who is the sender. And so this isn't an angel commanding Jesus. This is an angel relaying the message. And in that sense, Jesus swings his sickle and harvests the earth. And this is the idea of taking the believers. Verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Another angel who was in charge of the fire came from the halter and called in a loud voice to the angel who had a sharp sickle. Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes of the vine of the earth because its grapes are now ripe. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth and tossed them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Then the winepress was stomped outside the city and the blood poured out of the winepress up to the height of horses' bridles for a distance of almost 200 miles. This is 1,600 stadias. This second angel is not Christ and he reaps the unbelievers. So the idea is that Christ reaps and redeems and gathers up those who are sealed by him. But the angel of God's wrath comes and reaps the unbelievers and brings them into judgment. And they're thrown in the winepress. This imagery is used in Isaiah and multiple other places of God stomping on the grapes in his judgment and splattering his garments. And so 
this, there, there's no good way to see this. It's stomping and smashing and squashing. What does it mean that it's for 1,600 stadia and up to the horse's bridle? I don't think the idea is that's literally how much blood is on the earth. Okay, that's a lot of blood. Like if you take blood up to the height of a horse's head, then that's going to pretty much cover like almost the entire planet because we all know like liquid like levels out. So it's a metaphor meaning that no one will escape. The horse's bridle is about the height of a head. It will take the head of everyone, so to speak, and it will go on and on and on and on. Everybody is going to be redeemed. This seems to be a picture of two discrete harvests, the one of Christ and the one of the unbelievers done by the angel. Here we have a contrast between those who are sealed and they stand on Mount Zion with God and they sing a new song that they've been purchased by Christ and they're with God for all eternity. And the other contrast is those who follow the beast and give themselves over to the Babylon and they are reaped and squashed and plundered or stampeded in the winepress of God's fury.